I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 21st, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the great and terrible scenes from the opening weekend of the men's NCAA tournament, including the rise of Cinderella St. Peter's and the defeats suffered by America's team, Joel Anderson University. The Athletics' Chantel Jennings will also be here to assess the opening rounds of the women's tournament and whether the NCAA has actually made March Madness equitable. And finally, we'll discuss the Cleveland Browns' decision to trade for Deshaun Watson and sign him to a Megabucks extension despite 22 active sexual misconduct suits against the quarterback. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Can we tell the listeners uh, where you're going this week? Oh, yeah. I'm going to Mexico City (laughs) for the U.S. men's national soccer team game against Mexico. Critical final window of World Cup qualifying. Oh, wow. Mexico City, man. I've always wanted to go there. That's amazing. Yeah, it should be fun. So your assignment, Joel, is to watch the game so we can talk about it next week. I'm going to hold you to it. That's fine. I mean, you, I mean, this is a, a, another soccer game that has stakes, right? Like this time, it's really for yeah, real. This one has Which is going to be the determinative of where the U.S. men's team stands in the world standings. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, good I'll, to know maybe that. I'll make a sign that says Joel Anderson loves soccer and hold it up. Maybe that's <laughs> I'll, I'll be up. looking for it. I'll be looking for it. And with us from Palo Alto, California, wearing his... Uh, Clint Dempsey jersey. It's uh, Joel Anderson. He is the host of Slow Burn Season 3 on Biggie and Tupac and Season 6 on the LA Riots. Joel, we love you, Joel. No matter what gets said in this next segment, we love you. Just know that. You could have said that I was wearing an Eddie Lampkin jersey, but you (laughs) you passed on it. But yeah, um, I'm still still grieving. Um, I'm not over it yet. I don't know why I care this much about TCU basketball. I haven't been watching it all season. And then here we are this morning. Still a little little morose, but I'm gonna I'm gonna snap out of it in time for the show, I promise. Late on Sunday night in San Diego, America's team, the valiant men in purple, the alma mater of the legendary Lee Nalon. Some people call it DBU, Desmond Bain University, but I call them the fighting Joel Andersons of Texas Christian. Mm. Anyway, the Horned Frogs had a three-point lead over number one seed Arizona. Can you imagine a team that's as highly seeded as number one? It rarely happens. Um, But TCU had a three-point lead, clock ticking below 13 seconds. And then the Wildcats' Ben Matherin gets the ball between the half-court circle and the three-point line and fires. Terry with nowhere to go. Eddie doing a nice job sliding his feet. Play 
swish, tie ball game, timeout, commercial, another commercial, another commercial. Oh, now we're back. Looks like TCU's Mike Miles is getting mugged at half court, but they're not calling it. And now Arizona's going in for a game-winning dunk. Oh, wait. It was after the buzzer. We're still live. Overtime. And and then my tape just ran out at that point. Joel, I don't... What what happened after that? Um. Well, uh, the number one seed in the, uh, in the bracket did number one seed things. Um, you know, I wasn't actually prepared to address this so soon this morning while I was still in... <laughs> Feeling. Do you want to put out a statement? Actually, like, to, is it is it well, yeah, is it too I, early I, to actually address address this uh, with your voice from the <laughs> office of Joel Anderson? We've gotten enough notes over the years that nobody cares about TCU athletics, so I don't know why we're starting off. Uh, we but, care deeply, <laughs> and we care about you and right. your feelings. Yeah. Well, I'm hurt. Um, and, but you know, the thing is, is that you know TCU they left everything on the floor. Man, they did everything that you could hope. They would do in that game, but win. And um, they've left you, you resorting know, to cliches. That's yeah, no, impressive. I mean, you know, I really, I really, I really was heartened by their effort last <laughs> night. Um, they played like a Jamie Dixon, you know, vintage pit team from the early, you know, two thousands or whatever. Just they, they slowed the game down. They fought hard. They were, you know, got nearly twenty offensive rebounds. Um, I mean, Ben Mathurin, you know, Arizona star, although he did play very well, it wasn't like he got those points very efficiently. They made it really difficult for him. So they did everything that you could want them to do but win. And, um, you know, I, I know that a lot of TCU fans have been blaming the refs for not calling that foul on Mike Miles at half court, um, you know, right before the buzzer. And look, referees have a really difficult job. Uh, I, there's so many other plays within that game that led to the outcome. Like this is way too rational. Know, again, I don't, I'm not seriously. What's wrong with you? The ref well, was completely out of position. He was like closer to the baseline than he was yeah. to midcourt. He was blocked by an Arizona player, yeah. and he completely screwed the call. Yeah. Come no, on. it's true. Come on, yeah, Joel. I mean, I, look, I mean, they made they made bad. I mean, the thing is, college officiating, as we've all learned over the weekend, and 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 as we know from when we watch college basketball much much more intently um, over the last you know over the years, we know that the officiating isn't great, um, and so you cannot expect that you're going to get you know grade A officiating in these moments. You can't. I mean, the one thing you know as an athlete, your coaches say, don't leave it in the hands of the officials. Like, leave no doubt. And they were at a point at which they were subject to the mercy of the officials. Um, now, it sucks. Um, you know, that that should have been a foul, I think. And we should have gotten two free throws that might have given us the opportunity we, to win. All right, but we're like, back I in it, baby. We're back, we're we're back, back in, in the, the right emo- emotional yeah. register. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm, you can see that I'm going through a tumult of emotions here. But I mean, I guess you all, you know, I don't know. Did you all enjoy this? Are you, you all, you all, because if we had, I, I get the feeling that if TCU had won, there wouldn't just be this, you know, you have a very light of spirit this morning. Uh, That's really so, mean you all to, be to think that we yeah, would, would revel in your pain. <laughs> it was a, it was a really, really good game. And I have been kind of developing a theory of what makes some, uh, March Madness game's good and what makes some bad. The good ones are the ones that are close. And then there's a buzzer beater at the end. <laughs> no, like, what I really liked about this game is that you had a couple guys on 
Arizona, Matherin and Coloco, who are just like NBA dudes and like are playing, just like making amazing plays um, that showcase like why they're really good at basketball. But on the other side with TCU and like, I I hate to resort to uh, cliche, but that's what TCU has this uh, with uh, this morning. It's like those dudes were just like transcending their ability and playing really hard. And you have a guy like Eddie Lampkin who is just like a March Madness kind of body type. Like this is not a guy Uh (laughs) that you're going to see at the proverbial next level. He's just like a big, bulky, burly, ground-bound dude who like Coloco, who we're going to see in the NBA for the next 12 to 15 years, like couldn't handle down low. Um, And Mike Miles is like, I don't know, maybe he'll have a, a career, but he's like a small and like fire hydrant type guy. And it's just like the... Like how Purdue has like a seven foot four guy and like Arkansas has like a five foot six guy. It's just I like the range of like types of players and and bodies and teams that you see. And this was a kind a great sort of matchup where one of the top teams gets tested and uh, they really had to play their best to win at the end, Stefan. They had to get a break to win at the end, too, because, yes, that obviously could have very easily been called a foul. Um, And TCU could have, as you just pointed out, Joel had a chance to win at the free throw line. Um, But what else, I think, goes into uh, an enjoyable tournament, and this is obvious, too, is that you have a sprinkling of completely unexpected results. Um, And they don't have to even be termed upsets, just like when you look at names on a piece of paper or on a screen and you see words like St. Peter's and Montana and Davidson, which almost beat Michigan State in the first round, losing by one point in a matchup between the uh, alma maters of Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Um, That is what makes this fun. Um, And if there's enough of those weird-looking names competing well, going down to the buzzer, or even winning, then it's really exciting. And the St. Peter's story is just great because this is a tiny school. It's got like 2,400 students. It's in Jersey City. Its gym is looks like a high school gym. You know, these are the sort of the hidden backstories. St. Peter's coach, I mean, and they're a 15 seed, right? They beat Kentucky in the first round and Murray State in the second round. And their coach is a New York basketball legend, Shaheen Holloway, who had a great uh, college career. And it's one of those stories of a, of a sort of a striving coach and a striving school. I mean, I don't even know if St. Peter's is striving and wants to be a good basketball school, but just the sort of a joyfully unexpected result. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I feel like St. Peter's was one of those schools that came up in that documentary that we had a segment on a couple years ago, The Benedict Men. Mm -hmm. It was sort of this school for the D1 athletes that didn't go to, like, the Big E school, right? Uh, It was like, oh, okay, well, he ended up at St. Peter's, so it's kind of okay. He didn't live out his dream, but he's still going to play Division I basketball. So, yeah, to be honest, I had not heard of that school outside of that context um, until this weekend. And, yeah, it was really nice to see them do well. And yeah, I think that's right, Stefan, that you want like one of these 15 seeds at the next, at the next weekend. Not a lot of them, because then right. I think that it then I think the games become, you know, there's not enough recognizable teams or programs, but having one of these teams is really good. And, well, I just and have the to likelihood say of a, just a, a ridiculous blowout increases every time one of these teams takes the court. 
Absolutely, because then eventually they get in and over their head. I, I will say this, though, and this is just sort of a little annoyance as like a Southern guy. You know, Shaheen Holloway had this clip where he said, you know, you think we're afraid? We're from New York and New Jersey. I mean, I, get, the, I mean get, get the fuck out of here, okay? I mean, seriously. Like, no, but, you know, I mean, it's, I, I lived in New York. It's not that big a deal. I just, all that tough, all that, oh, I'm from New York and New Jersey. We're so tough. Like, that just shit is just so annoying to me. But but beyond that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for Shaheen Holloway. And um, and St. Peter's, and you know, we also did, you know, Shaheen's how you know, uh, alma mater, Seton Hall, you know, who knocked them out of the tournament. Uh, are you guys familiar with that program? So we were robbed of a TCU Houston matchup and the Sweet Sixteen, yeah. and so in basketball, not in football, not in not in rugby, not in tennis. Who does Joel Anderson root for in a TCU Houston basketball game? And has that ever? come up yeah that would have killed me uh as a child like pre-1996 it's university of houston all the way um i have not spent a lot of time rooting for tcu basketball since like 1998 you mentioned lee nalon um that was like when tcu was last like a really good basketball program so this team is super fun how could you root against eddie lampkin and mike miles yeah, right. I think that like I didn't. And Charles O'Bannon Jr. Invested. Does that make does that make anyone I, else feel old? <laughs> oh yeah, no. Shaheen Holloway makes me feel yeah, right, really old. Right. I, I I mean I did not realize I would get as emotionally invested in TCU's uh, run until you know to the game got started last night and I was like oh shit like I'm falling for this <laughs> like I just I, I did not want I did not want it to hurt like that I knew that it was a mistake so yeah probably I would go I would have gone for TCU. Um, but yeah, like I can, it's, it's easy now. I can switch all my, you know, my affection to the University of Houston, which is shaping up as one of the best teams in the tournament. And in fact, um, I was looking at my boy, Myron Medcalfs. He reseeded all of the top 16 teams left in the tournament. And he has Houston as like the fifth best team of these, the, the 16 teams left. So um, they actually have a little legitimate chance to go pretty far too. So, you know, it, it all worked out. Now, now I'm rooting for a team that has a legitimate shot to do some damage uh, over the next two also, weekends. Also, Ben Matherin is going to single-handedly decimate your your life and childhood by uh, des- destroying all of your teams. But <laughs> Oh, you'll kill, slay both of my favorite teams. No, I hope not. I, 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 you know, I, I also learned to not like Arizona after last night. Like, I'm not, like, tripping on them celebrating like some TCU fans, but, like— we I saw enough of them that I'm like okay I don't I don't want to see you all anymore after next week. Okay, so there were there were a handful of games that fit into the same I, I think category of uh, as Arizona TCU where you have high level play on both sides, really good teams and really good players pushed to um, do something transcendent in order to win. I would put Duke Michigan State in that category, mm-hmm. which actually led me to mm-hmm. wonder like I I, I kind of want to rag on Coach K, but. I feel like watching that game, like Michigan State has a lot of like really good players and like a seven foot dude who's like super like can shoot. And it's like, why do you have so many losses? Is Tom Tom Izzo? Do you need do we need to get a new guy in there? Maybe he needs to retire. Get somebody at get somebody to give that team a, a little juice. But to see like Paolo Banquero really like nail a bunch of threes and play like he's capable mm-hmm. of playing down the stretch. Jeremy Roach, kind of like small point guard, a little overpraised, but to watch Bancaro do his thing, that was really fun. And then Gonzaga and Memphis, um, again, like you have like Gonzaga losing by ten at halftime and winning by twenty because they 
played had how they had to play in the second half. And like you were about to say, Josh, the players who needed that we want to see do well did well. Yeah, Holmgren, uh, Nimhard, Timmy uh, all played really well in the second half. But then I feel like there's a higher proportion than usual of games that are just absolute trash. Um, and I mm. say this only slightly because I'm salty about the LSU-Iowa State game. <laughs> but Wisconsin-Iowa State, I like flipped over there by accident Oof. at some point. Oof. And they were running a montage of like number 34 from Wisconsin and his uh, attribute from that game they're praising is that he had drawn na- nine fouls against the opposing team. Oof. And when they're running the opposition, Wisconsin had something like 30 points. So <laughs> just absolute garbage basketball. And one of my pet peeves is when you have like NBA people or people that just like are fans of sports that are not college basketball, just like firing off tweets that are just like, college basketball is so terrible. Wow, this sport is really bad. Um, And Wait, what's your your rejoinder to that? Because it is bad. My rejoinder rejoinder to that is like, (laughs) some of the games are bad and some of the games are good. Um, There are a lot of games mm. happening at the same time and you can not, you can, Make a choice, a life choice, not to watch Wisconsin-Iowa State. Mm. I would recommend that life choice to anyone and everyone. But, like, March Madness solves for that by having single elimination Mm. games. It's like, what would you do to address it? Well, maybe, like, could you imagine watching a seven-game series of (laughs) Wisconsin-Iowa State? Like, the NCAA gets a lot of things wrong, but, like, they definitely nailed that one. And so it's, it's just like the opening two rounds, you have a lot of teams that don't have great players, and if good defense is being played, then they look even worse than they are. And good defense is often being played because everybody's trying like as hard as they possibly can because they actually care about this tournament. Um, but then you have so many games happening that like in whatever window, there's going to be like something to watch where teams are playing competently and have good players. Really? Okay. I, so I have a, I say I have another th- theory. The, really? The, the good games are far farther and fewer in between than they used to be. Is I mean, we all sort of know that that college basketball isn't what it is. And my my theory is that in watching sort of the Michigan State Duke game, um, or even the Arizona game, in in college it seems like it's much more difficult for the stars to exert their influence over their game. Um, that like because coaches are such. Because coaches are the programs in college basketball because of all the movement that my they, box score they indicates a lot that more Matherin and Coloco combined for fifty-eight points against TCU. Yeah, they but like, exerted, okay, they exerted quite a lot. I thought. Show, show me. Show, what, what was his shooting? What was the shooting percentage for Matherin in that game? By he way? was exerting. You said he was exerting, points. Joel. Uh, I, I mean, uh, you his know, shooting again, percentage I, I was he made that last shot actually. What a, oh, see, this is what I'm talking. <laughs> but where's your expectation level, Joe? I don't turn these games on expecting them to look like NBA games. I expect them to have lots mm. of, you know, lots of turnovers, lots of good defense, lots of bricks, because it's college basketball. I mean, there are so many teams and only so many great players. And I think it's recency bias to think that there was some, like, some some halcyon era where where college basketball in the first two rounds no. of the NCAA tournament looked like the NCAA. In, in Joel's defense, like, no. like in, de- no. in Joel's defense, I will say, no. I will say this, like at whatever night that was, I turned on Arkansas and New Mexico state. And when I think of Arkansas and New Mexico state, I think of like two high flying programs dating back 
decades where you're imagining a score that's like 98 to 94 in overtime, mm-hmm. like 40 minutes of hell. Oh, and Todd, like, Day, Todd Day, Lee Mayberry, you know, the old school, you know, Corliss Williamson. And then, great. Stefan, I turn on this game and it's like 30 to 28 with like three minutes left. It's like, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on with you people? <laughs> You're disgracing right. your I legacies. Mean, well, I think because like with every team, you can pinpoint an era where there was something remarkable about it and your brain goes back <laughs> there. So you think Arkansas, you're thinking 40 minutes of hell. That was 30 years ago. But Arkansas is <laughs> a four seed. They're well, good. They have good players. Right. They're good and they're still good. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I, I don't want to denigrate the game too much because it is like a really good product it's it's entertaining to watch because the games are close and competitive and they're being hard fought but i do think that there is something to the idea that coaches have a way of minimizing the influence of the 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 five star the real freak talents you know the guys like chet holmgren we'll see his talents flourish on another level but in college for whatever reason it's the games seem a lot more buttoned up they're a lot tighter you know it's just really hard to see guys open things up in these games. And it's just not a really attractive brand of ball. Um, I mean, Michael that doesn't Jordan, mean that I mean, it's not... Right? I mean, this, this again, this also is, never, is not new and has, as, you know, as it ever was. I mean, but I feel like the difference is that by the time you got to this level of the game, that, like, every team has an NBA player. Like, I feel like maybe it, it, at least one or one guy that had, like, a real future. And I'm looking at, like, a lot of these games, and I'm like, well, what... Wisconsin and Iowa State. I'm sure, you know, maybe somebody's going to go to the NBA out of that game, I guess. I don't Johnny know. Davis. But it did not. Johnny Davis. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see it that much. So anyway. Um, they got to do something about the end of the games, though. Like, the structurally, like, for all the, that we can complain about teams bricking shots, turnovers, whatever, like, the superstructure of the tournament is kind of unassailable. It's... Just it, it works beautifully, except when both teams have three timeouts going into the last two minutes, and now with the advent of like going to the monitors on every call, it is just absolutely unwatchable. Um, and so the Elam ending is, nece- is necessary. They need to implement that thing ASAP because the fouling and the timeouts and the monitor reviews are just absolutely out of control. Uh, but I don't even know where I'm going with this. Maybe I'll just say it again. The ends of games are just, are it's atrocious. It's atrocious. I'm sorry. Up next, the athletic Chantel Jennings on the women's tournament. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
One year ago, Sedona Prince of the Oregon Ducks posted a TikTok video comparing a weight room at the NCAA women's basketball tournament, one stack of 12 dumbbells, with one at the men's tournament, an actual normal gym-like space with hand weights, free weights, and machines. The video went viral, and the NCAA, which is hard to shame, was shamed into addressing the historic and gaping inequalities. After commissioning a report from a civil rights law firm, the women's tournament now has 68 teams, just like the men, and is branded March Madness, just like the men. The NCAA also evened up some perks, swag bags, yogurt bars, pasta stations. At the final four, the men and women both will be able to relax in lounges with a ping pong table, three big screen TVs, and exactly 28 pillows. Chantel Jennings covers women's basketball for The Athletic. She is with us now. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to talk about the equity efforts in a bit, but let's start with the games. The women's tournament is also looking more like the men's on the court with more early round upsets. Two number two seeds, Iowa and Baylor, went down on Sunday to number 10s, Creighton and South Dakota. That brought the number of wins by double-digit seeds to eight, with eight second-round games still to be played on Monday. By comparison, the men's bracket through two rounds has seen 12 wins by double-digit seeds. So, Chantel, is this a sign that the women's field is generally getting stronger overall? And if so, why? Yeah, I think so. And I've actually been asking a bunch of coaches this exact question because I think parity, you know, in the 50th year of Title IX is sort of on the minds of so many people as we talk about women's sports. And I think, like everything, there's probably 27 different reasons why, but there's a few different reasons specifically that I think we're seeing it right now. Overall, I think just women in sports over time, there's been more enrollment at the youth levels, more investment in sort of the AAU, grassroots, EYBL. So you're seeing sort of the level of the average player is just higher. So, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And so the average level of the player, of the female player coming into college is higher. But I think we're also kind of seeing a direct effect of the COVID year. You look at some of these upsets, and the COVID year provided a few things. Any player who played last year got a bonus year. So you look at a team like South Dakota. They have three super seniors, you know, players that shouldn't necessarily be playing right now, that in the before times wouldn't have eligibility. You look at other teams in this tournament, there are a lot of players that, you know, in 2017, 2018, they wouldn't be playing. They would be either, you know, trying to have a professional career in the WNBA, professional as something else. But they're having their fifth or their sixth, or in the case of Allie Patberg, a seventh year at the college level. And then I think you're also seeing sort of the players who opted to not take that year and leave for the WNBA draft. Those weren't the mid-major players. Again, South Dakota, those players aren't opting into the WNBA draft. Players from Baylor, Dijanae Carrington, Dee Dee Richards, they did. You look at that matchup and you know, okay, if Dee Dee and Dijanae had stayed, this is potentially a much different game. And then elsewhere, the transfer rule. No one had to sit out. You look at the Iowa-Creighton game. Lauren Jansen, who hit that game winner for Creighton, came from Iowa last year. In the before times, would have been sitting out this season. She's not. She's playing immediately. And so I think it's sort of this confluence of a lot of events, both long-term and short-term, that we're seeing sort of hit right away. Chantel, we talked about the, the parity piece of this, but, I mean, was there any sense that... Iowa and Baylor were particularly vulnerable this year, or at least so vulnerable 
that they might struggle before they even got to the second weekend. Because, like, I mean, for instance, like Caitlin Clark and the Hawkeyes, they had pretty much their worst offensive game in the last two years. I didn't, it's not like anybody could have predicted that, right? Well, neither one of these teams has a ton of depth. Um, and so when you look at a team like Iowa, Caitlin Clark and Monica Sinano are the offense. Um, and Creighton basically said, we're going to have someone not named Caitlin Clark beat us. <laughs> you know, they filtered like three different defensive players onto her to keep them really fresh. They were super physical with her and basically said like, you are going to beat us at the free throw line, not at the three point line. Um, it was a gamble, but it paid off. <clears throat> Baylor, I've been worried about their depth all year. Um, they are a team that ran like six deep, maybe seven. Um, and so again, that's like, if you get into foul trouble in the tournament, it seemed to be more physical. A lot of, uh, power conference coaches are complaining a little bit about the refs letting a little more go this year. Um, but it's been a really physical game. And I think that again, you sort of see these teams that maybe aren't as cohesive as other teams where they have more turnover from the years before. Presumably everybody is going into a game saying we want to shut down Caitlin Clark. We don't want her to get off and we're going to meet somebody else beat us. So what exactly is it that Creighton did that everybody else has been unable to do over the last two years? I like they just came in with a really good like defensive plan. I don't know because they ran through the end of the Big Ten regular season to win a share of the conference title. They ran through the conference tournament to win the Big Ten conference tournament title. Creighton came in, I'd imagine, though they will never say it, that there was a level of sort of, you know, this is Creighton, we're Iowa, we're going to be playing in front of 14,000 fans. But I think that maybe there was an underestimation of what this team could do. I think they got in Caitlin's head a bit, you know, sort of there were multiple plays where she would get hit and she'd hit the ground and then she would kind of turn to the ref. And by the time she got up and was running back, Creighton was like set up in their offense. And so I think that that was sort of an consistent and maybe just like added up over time. They missed a ton of layups. And again, I don't know how much that is sort of the refing, the physicality of the game. They missed two right at the end, like a bunny from Monica Zanano. And it was either Kate, Kate Martin or McKenna that missed, you know, just a left-handed layup just these really easy shots that you sort of wonder, how does this happen? Um, but they do, and it's March, and it sort of happens at maybe a higher rate in March. Yeah, I mean, in the Auburn-Miami game in the men's tournament, Auburn missed about 400 layups, and it's like, that just happens sometimes, and then you lose, and then you don't get another chance to play. Also, just <laughs> I had forgotten about this during our, our previous segment, but... Um, a kind of bizarre thing uh, in the St. Peter's story is that they were three and six before they had to pause for a month for COVID. And then when they came back after COVID, they were just like really good. <laughs> like Shaheen Holloway was like, it allowed us to like really work on our defense. So like, it is interesting to see how COVID is affecting programs, both in the kind of the long-term and short-term ways and in sort of unexpected ways. But the result to me that was the most fascinating, perhaps just because of my parochial interests, Chantel, is um, the Jackson State LSU game, where in a lot of these tournaments, kind of where you see the disparities is these first round games with um, historically black colleges. Like you saw it in this tournament, South Carolina beat Howard 79 to 21. Um, and then that game was, that the, game was 44 to 4 at halftime and 60 to 8 after the third quarter. And Both LSU had women's a double, NCAA records for holding an opponent. 
Yeah, and LSU had a double-digit lead on Jackson State for the first quarter. It looked like it was going to be a walk. Um, and then Jackson State had a double-digit lead with about five minutes to go in that game. LSU did come back to win with a furious comeback at the end. And if you wanted to talk about teams that have benefited from super seniors, I mean, LSU has all of these seniors, all of these players. They got transfers. They have Kim Mulkey. Like, they're a team that you would look at their roster and be like, okay, th- like that. That's like kind of the high major version of the South Dakota storyline where they benefit from continuity and seniority. And then you have Jackson State, this team. I mean, they have a bunch of high major transfers, but like what an amazing performance by them and what um, a possible ups- like that would have been the maybe the storyline of the first weekend if they had been able to hold on. Oh, I certainly think it would have. And, you know, I think as as reporters, you're always rooting for good storylines. And so I'm switching between all the games and I forget what other game was on at that point. But LSU goes into the half with, like you said, a double digit lead. And I'm thinking, OK, I can switch away. I've seen what I need to see out of LSU. I get a note from my editor in the third quarter that was like, hey, you need to switch back to this Jackson State. And I was like, wait, seriously? <laughs> and it just sort of looked like LSU was falling apart. Um, and Jackson State was doing everything right. And again, it's just sort of these these March storylines where it feels like everything kind of lines up a little bit better. And again, it's, I think, the average player coming out of a high school. And there's probably, you know, investment in terms of even at the college level in the low major, mid major, high major, everyone's investing more and everyone sort of has access to more. And so what does that mean for the average college athlete experience and sort of what they're able to do to bring their game to the next level? You know, I don't, you know, in the next few years, I think we will see these sort of upsets that we see more commonly on the men's side, sort of the St. Peter's storylines where the 215 is more competitive, maybe not in the case of the play-in versus South Carolina, the overwhelming number one, but um, maybe the twos and threes, we've already seen two tens upset. I think they're going to happen more and more. Well, women's basketball, of course, did have the first 16 over a one way back when Harvard beat Stanford. Um, but it's the it's the accumulation of these games and these performances. You know, another upset was Princeton, who's seated 11th, beating Kentucky, who was seated sixth in the first round. And Princeton has a an incredible individual player, Abby Myers, um, and B, they are incredibly good on defense, one of the best teams in the country, averaging just 51 points per game and keeping teams to like 35% shooting from the field. So in that mid-level, like you have pointed out, the improvement in these programs is going to deliver more of these that leave the big-name schools feeling like, what just happened? Because they're not expecting that kind of a performance from a Princeton or a Creighton. Um, At the top, though, and maybe we should pivot now, there's still, you know, more dominance than there is at the men's level. Um, the top seeds are still the top seeds, even though I have to say that watching South Carolina play Miami on Sunday, a f- game that ended 49-33, to 33, I mean, that, that was, was bizarre. an ugly, ugly basketball game, and it did not seem to justify South Carolina's um, reputation as the best team in the country. But I guess the, the, the question I have now is that, if you take the top four and say, hey, they're still great and Connecticut is looking like they're about to peak, 
after Paige Beckers has returned from injury during the season and is rounding back into form. Is there more competitive balance at the very top, even throwing out the fact that two number two seeds did lose? I mean, are we are we getting sort of a more diverse group of teams at the top with this sort of bubbling up of the mid-majors that can challenge? I think so. And I guess it'll depend kind of on what we're looking at. If we're looking at sort of the Tennessee-UConn days, right, where it was like it was either going to be Tennessee or UConn. I don't necessarily think we're in that time anymore. South Carolina, again, with the exception of that Miami game, which I do not understand what happened. That is the worst by far I've seen a Don Staley team play in a very long time. Um, Aaliyah Boston did not look like herself. Destiny Anderson and Zaya Cook did not look like themselves. It was just a very strange game. Camilla Cardoso Is it the Chantel not... Jennings uh, curse for Aaliyah Boston after your profile? They called her soft doing those, 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 all those you know stuffed animals, and then she went out there and plays like that. So I know I, I it was the whole grizzly bear teddy bear comparison, and then she looked discernibly like a teddy bear out there. You know, if she has to sort of sink two very late free throws to get her twenty six double double, something is very wrong for South Carolina. Um, Camila Cardoza should not be leading that team in scoring ever. Um, and she did. So, no, I do think, again, with the exception of that game, South Carolina, to me, has looked like the most complete team, the most complete defense um, moving forward. But beyond them, I do think with two number two seeds going down, Louisville is a precarious number one seed to me. Um, I think Stanford looked really strong yesterday. Sometimes they have some second half issues, but yesterday they certainly did not. Lexi Hall had an amazing game for them came out with a career higher season high 36 points. But I think we're sort of seeing, again, a rising tide lifts all boats. And these teams that, you know, we're seeing one or two players sort of bring a team along. Ari McDonald with Arizona last year is a good example where that's a team that had a phenomenal team defense and one offensive player that could just make magic. And I think maybe that's higher level of EYBL and AAU players are coming into college, not just playing, you know, a two, three zone defense, all of their AAU days or a two, one, two, they're actually coming into college with an understanding so that they're able to play this team defense, that they're able to play, you know, higher and heavier schemes early in their college career. And I think overall, we're just seeing a more competitive landscape. So Chantel, it, it does seem like we've come a really long way since Sedona Prince's video last year when she posted a video to social media highlighting like the disparities between the men's and the women's tournaments. Um, but is it that simple? Did that video directly lead to all of the changes that we're seeing in the presentation of the women's tournament this year? I don't know. Sunlight's a pretty good bleach, right? Like <laughs> you were saying, it's hard to shame the NCAA into doing something right. Um, I would say in ways that will feel really tangible to the players this year, yes. Um, like you said, there will be exactly 28 pillows, and that is something they can feel good about, knowing that the men also have 28 pillows. Thank God, right? Um, <laughs> I think on the surface level, that's something that feels really good when I talk to players and, and coaches about this. But then you get a little bit deeper, and I think the general feeling is like, how did it take a worldwide pandemic and a study that cost millions of dollars for the NCAA to decide, yeah, let's do this <laughs> equitably. And again, money makes the world go round. So there's some different ways that we need to see moving forward. 
in terms of the women's game. The women's game is still under contract with 28 other championships until 2024. Ed Desser in the Kaplan report said that the women's tournament alone is worth somewhere between 81 and 121 million if it's marketed on its own. We need to see that happen. We need to see the NCAA go out and put the women's tournament on its own. I think there are other ways that the NCAA has sort of thought, you know, well, maybe we'll put the final four together. Talk to the women's coaches. That's not something they want. You know, equitable doesn't just mean like give them the exact same thing. It's listening to them and investing the same amount of time and money and figuring out the best situation for these two championships that are the same, but are also, you know, not the same. Maybe the women don't want that. And when you talk to the women's coaches, the vast majority of them don't want to have it with the men because ultimately they don't trust that the NCAA could pull it off equitably. And I think looking, you know, even sort of further down the line, the performance fund right now that the NCAA gives out to conferences, it's only for men's tournament appearances. There's none for the women. And so there's sort of all of these ways tangibly, again, the women are going to get to play ping pong at the final four this year. That's great. The fans are going to have a better experience at the final four this year. That's great. There were the play-in games. That's great. Sort of all of these things that you can say, two thumbs up to the NCAA. But I think moving forward, there are these changes, specifically when it comes to finances, that are going to have a much larger impact on the conferences and the women's game overall. It's funny that um, the kind of big complaint about men's college basketball sort of exemplified by Shabazz Napier making his um, comments about the billions that were coming into college basketball's coffers while players can't afford to eat. It's just that these players are being exploited by rapacious capitalists and not being uh, compensated for it. Whereas in the women's game, the issue is that they're not being exploited by rapacious capitalists. (laughs) It's like they're leaving all this money on the table that would probably not get passed along to the the players. Um, but it, it's just funny that sexism can trump capitalism um, <laughs> in uh, a lot of different cases because it, it just seems odd that they would willfully leave all of this money on the table. But, like, you know, it's been notable to see the Buick ad campaign running throughout the men's tournament that has the blank screen um, mm-hmm. with audio of uh, Arika Agumbawale's game winner saying, you probably didn't see this, and noting the disparity right. that 40% of athletes are women, but they get less than 10% of the media coverage. So, like, a company like Buick is like, oh, we can get some, like, social capital by, like, pointing at, by, like, being pro-woman in this context um, and making, you know, a, g- a good point that should be made. And so it it does feel like things are changing. Um, And the question is, when the changes happen, like you said, will they listen to what um, teams and coaches and the sports organizers want? Or will we see like a kind of economic exploitation that uh, won't ultimately be appreciated? Well, I would jump in and also say that the one thing we haven't mentioned here is that the economic Uh, advantages for women under name, image, and likeness are important um, and will will further push the NCAA and conferences to do more with women athletes. Um, Paige Paige Beckers of uh, of Connecticut, the athletic, did a piece about her NIL status. 
Uh, Forbes recently estimated she is a few deals away from reaching a million dollars in endorsements. And this is an athlete that wants to use that power to help grow women's basketball and women's sports more broadly. So I think that the merger of these factors, a more um, aware NCAA, shamed NCAA, uh, willing to set aside its own institutional sexism to generate more revenue broadly combined with athletes who are getting recognized in this way will also help to lift the sport and other sports. Well, and I think, you know, speaking with agents and people in in the business ahead of NIL sort of launch, if we can call it that, everyone is saying women, you know, are going to really benefit in this. Because if you look at marketing campaigns right now, they're all trending towards social. It's all social and digital marketing and advertising. And who, when you look at college athletes, is really good at social? It's the women. It's female athletes. It's women athletes. And so... I think a lot of those players sort of realize that. And I think like you were saying, a lot of the women's players, especially women who are in college and were at the NCAA tournament last year and were sort of faced with Sedona Prince's video of like, oh, you know, we knew this was an issue, but holy smokes, like this is how bad it is. And I think that reminder has sort of push the activist button in a lot of these players where maybe before they would have said like, yeah, obviously I want to push for women athletes, but a lot of them are stepping out of their comfort zones in a way where, you know, maybe the Buicks of the world that are trying for that social capital, like you were saying, Josh, are going to start tapping more of these women athletes who are younger, who are using their voices in a lot of really important ways. Chantel Jennings covers women's basketball for The Athletic. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Chantel. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. In our next segment, we'll talk about the Cleveland Browns signing Deshaun Watson. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Leah Thomas, who competed in the NCAA championships this past week. We'll talk about how she did what the protests look like, and the conversation around her victory and the future of trans participation in sports. Um, If you want to listen to that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. And if you are a member, you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get bonus segments on this show and others like Slow Burn. And you support our show. The show would not be possible without your support. Slate Plus helps keep the show going. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. Again, that's slate.com slash hangupplus. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Sunday, two days after the Cleveland Browns traded for Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson... 
Franchise owners Jimmy and Dee Haslam finally released a public statement to address their controversial acquisition. Many of you already likely know that 22 women have filed civil suits against Watson and accused him of sexual assault and sexual misconduct. In their statement, the Haslam said, We are acutely aware and empathetic to the highly personal sentiments expressed about this decision. Our team's comprehensive evaluation process was of utmost importance due to the sensitive nature of his situation and the complex factors involved. We also understand there are still some legal proceedings that are ongoing, and we will respect due process. The Haslam's also wrote, We are confident in Deshaun and excited about moving forward with him as our quarterback and supporting his genuine and determined efforts. The team's comprehensive evaluation process didn't include a conversation with Tony Busby, the attorney who represents the 22 women who have filed those lawsuits. In fact, Busby told reporters on Sunday that no NFL team reached out to him or his clients as trade rumors about Watson heated up in the past month. So, Stefan... We've known Watson was likely going to get traded and that he would play again at some point in the near future. But what, if anything, does it say that there was such a robust trade market for Watson? Let's start with uh, establishing that market. The bidding for Watson began after a grand jury in Harris County, Texas, on Friday, March 11th, declined to indict him on criminal charges related to allegations from nine of the women who were massage therapists. And let's be specific. The allegations against Watson include that he exposed himself to therapists, touched his genitals to their hands, and ejaculated on them. Immediately after the grand jury decision, the pre-planned choreography began. According to news reports, Watson waived a no-trade clause with the Texans, and his agents immediately began negotiating with at least four teams, the Panthers, Falcons, Saints, and Browns. In the middle of the week, Watson's reps told the Browns and Panthers, no thanks, they were out of it. But while Watson was waffling between picking either the Saints and his home state Falcons, the Browns leapt in with a crazy offer, what I'd like to think is a shocking offer, five years, $230 million, all of it guaranteed, the most guaranteed money in NFL history. But, Joel, you asked what it says that there was a robust market for Watson. It says that NFL teams will talk themselves into anything if they think there's a chance that it will help them win games. It says that teams believe the repercussions of signing players credibly accused of sexual assault or harassment by almost two dozen women in this case will be minimal, especially if they win more games. And it says that teams are willing to be complicit in helping the accused minimize his punishment. And this might be the grossest thing in the Watson deal. The team expects that he will be suspended for at least six games under NFL rules. So the Browns agreed to pay him just $1 million in the 2022 season to minimize his per-game losses from a suspension. Uh, Josh, you don't have to look further than the word salad statements that the team issued on Sunday to see how how aggressively the Browns are going to try to bullshit their way through this signing, at least for now. Yeah, I think you said it all in the way that they've structured the contract is a giveaway to me, structuring the deal so that um, if and when Watson is suspended for his alleged sexual misconduct, he will um, reap the greatest financial reward possible. And it's just impossible to look at this sequence of events and come um, to any other conclusion, Joel, than that Deshaun Watson benefited massively from being an accused sexual predator. He sat out the whole last season with pay because the Texans didn't want to pay him because of the cloud around him. And this became 
an opportunity because he had this no trade clause for him, a guy in the prime of his athletic life, mid-20s, one of the best, uh, most talented quarterbacks in the NFL, to become essentially an unrestricted free agent, but not just that, to have the entire league kind of over a barrel and have teams just like begging him to go there. And you have this guy because of what he allegedly did, the circumstances develop such that he gets this massive amount of guaranteed money that he wouldn't have uh, have seen, that there wouldn't have been, you know, a team fighting to give him, Joel. I mean, it's, it's super gross. And um, the statements that have come out about it, trying to justify it, um, are, are laughable uh, on their face. Yeah, you know, there's a really small part of me that feels that the only people who have standing co- to complain about this are people who've already boycotted the NFL. Um, because we know what we're watching and we know who the people are behind it. There's nothing we've learned about this case that's taught us anything new about Deshaun Watson, the Cleveland Browns, or the NFL. Um, but more broadly, I think about how um, in the last few years, many people in organizations have sort of figured out that shame doesn't have to be an obstacle for you or your organization. And in fact, that shamelessness can open a lot of doors for you, that you whether you want to trade for an NFL quarterback or become a social media influencer or even run for president, that if you're willing to press your advantages and not feel shame that you have an advantage over everybody else that is adhering to like the sort of antiquated notion of not indulging in your shamelessness. I mean, this, I mean, look, I mean, to not go too broad here, this country elected a man who had more accusations of sexual assault and sexual misconduct than Deshaun Watson, right? So if it's not a barrier to the White House, why would it be a barrier to the NFL? Um, essentially, we're pretending that society is better than it really is. And so it's not a surprise that the that Deshaun Watson was able to use this moment where he should be more contrite, um, talking about the things that he's going to do to make restitution, the things that he's going to do to improve and to make sure that this never, ever happens again. And the, and the Browns should be saying the same thing, right? They should be doing this and saying those things right now. But why would they? Because this actually worked out in their favor. All of this lined up. For, to them to work to that. And and the Falcons and the Saints and the Panthers, they all realize that as well. They're like, look, we'll have to deal with this for a little bit. So much shit is happening in the world that people won't even be able to pay attention to it. And when they do pay attention to it, we'll deal with that, you know, that controversy in the moment and we'll be able to move right past it. So I don't know, man. I mean, I guess we're in a league where Dan Snyder remains in, remains in good standing. You know, where Jerry Jones's spokesperson was allowed to resign despite accusations that he was a, basically a creep. So, and Joel, Jimmy Haslam um, was investigated by the FBI. His chain yeah. of truck stops and convenience stores and gas stations were found to have engaged in systematic fraud. They paid $92 million penalty um, and paid restitution to customers. I mean, I guess that's not as big as the contract and guaranteed right. money that he's paying out to Deshaun Watson. But these are the people that were kind of asking to uphold some sort of moral code. I mean, the only thing that gives me any kind of comfort, which is basically a scintilla of comfort, or maybe it rounds down to no comfort, Stefan, is that 
This, I think, is the system working. It's the best that we can expect. And what that is, is I think Deshaun Watson should have the opportunity to play in the NFL. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think he should be banned from the NFL for life. I mean, uh, we shouldn't expect the NFL to be harsher than the criminal justice system is. I mean, it's. I think it was Jessica Luther who's saying, you know, when asked if, if she has more faith in the criminal justice system or the NFL, it's like, that's like maybe the most difficult question to answer in all of all of humanity. But my point is, if if we're going to stipulate that he should be allowed to play in the NFL, the best that we can hope for as like fans and consumers and watchers of the NFL is that the teams just show us who they are. And the Browns have shown us who they are. And it's up to us. It's up to Browns fans. Because the NFL is not going to punish Jimmy Haslam, the NFL's, you know, it's it's up to all of it's on us. If if we continue to watch, if we continue to support them, it's on us. If I continue to, the Saints clearly wanted him. It's like, is it better that this? It, it doesn't speak any better of the Saints <laughs> that he chose the Browns rather than the Saints. It's like we have all the information that we need at this point and more. And before we. And before we move on to Stefan real quick, I mean, just consider that the best Cleveland Brown in franchise history is Jim Brown, a man who's been accused of or investigated for beating or raping women at least six times over the last few decades, right? Like, this is a problem that goes so far beyond even Deshaun Watson or the Cleveland Browns at this moment. Like, this is a, this is a man problem. This is not an NFL problem. But go ahead, Stefan. I'm sorry. Well, but there's in. also, you know, you, 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 if you want to stick to one business— um, you know, this is a team that far, far more recently than Jim Brown signed Kareem Hunt yep. uh, to a contract after he was seen on video assaulting a girlfriend. We talked about shame and the NFL and individual teams not having much of it when it comes to these business decisions. But, and Josh, you talked about holding teams accountable for what they've done. I mean, we still don't know whether the Browns can be shamed into actually doing something that might be constructive. Um, there, there were stories about how um, the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center got more than 1,000 donations after the Watson deal was announced. Kurt Streeter in the New York Times spoke with someone from that center about how traumatic this news was to women who work there and women who were calling the center. Um, so will the Browns do something about this? Will they actually address this publicly? Because obviously that chief of statements that they put out on Sunday did not come anywhere close, didn't do it at all. You know, some of the questions that have to be asked, Lindsey Jones and The Athletic asked some of them, like, are they going to make Deshaun Watson available to speak with the media? What will Deshaun Watson say? I'm not here to talk about the past, Stefan. I'm here to talk about the season, (laughs) and I'm here to talk about my teammates, and just it's really great to be here in Cleveland, thank them for believing in me, and I just really want to answer football, only only football questions. Okay, I, that's predictable. But how will then the Browns deal with their, as Lindsay pointed out also, with their, their women employees? Mm-hmm. Do they need to put some sort of protections in place? I mean, is there language in Deshaun Watson's contract that says he can't go visit outside massage therapists? The Browns should, in a better world, be forthright about some of this stuff. Well, look, I mean, in the state in the statement, they said two things that kind of expose what their thinking is. They said there was a comprehensive evaluation process when we know that they didn't speak to any of the the women or or um, their attorney. And they said that um, Deshaun 
made genuine and has made genuine and determined efforts when they couldn't possibly know that. Um, You know, based on all of the reporting we've seen, Joel, the entire NFL was waiting for that grand jury not to indict. And it seemed like there was an expectation that they wouldn't. I mean, we know that these kinds of cases with no witnesses um, are extremely challenging to indict, but it just seemed like everybody was waiting to have permission to do what they knew that they were going to do or always wanted to do. Well, what's interesting is that when this all got started, a grand jury decision was not really the standard that we were waiting on. Like, it was always about the civil lawsuits. I don't think anybody ever had any expectation that Deshaun Watson would get indicted or face criminal charges. Like, that was part of it. But the reason that he missed last year, and the reason that this was a big deal is because people were suing him, right? And so they were able to— Not just that they were suing him, that they were suing him and these stories came out publicly that all aligned with each other. And we all knew what the accusations were. Like, the women said them to all of us. We could read them and hear, hear them talk about them. And it was very compelling. Right. It was just a deaf sleight of hand that they were like, okay, he's not going to be criminally charged. Therefore, let the games begin, essentially. Um, And I don't know how that happened, but they were able to do that in full view of everybody. And as if that was always going to be the standard, and all of a sudden it took off. The thing that was sort of most disgusting to me is that the Browns said that they were impressed with Deshaun Watson. There's reporting that says they spoke to Deshaun Watson and they were impressed with him. And I'm just like... I mean, okay, you were impressed with him. Can you guarantee me that he's never going to do this again? Like, do you know that? And that's where I'm like, even beyond like the morality of the situation, like financially, is this even smart? Like, you can guarantee that this guy is not going to do this again with massage therapists. I, I wouldn't put 230 million guaranteed on this dude to not do that again. They've got a lot more confidence in him than the rest of us should have. And I, I, I would like to know where that confidence comes from or if it's just all part of the same shamelessness. Or is it stipulated in his contract, as there are morals clauses in all of these contracts, that right. specifically if he does visit another outside massage therapist, it's a reason to avoid the deal. I mean, I'm curious whether there was a single NFL team that decided not to participate in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes because of the allegations. Um, you know, it feels like I wish someone would step up and say that. And I also wish that people who could just sit it out would sit it out. Did LeBron James really need to tweet, yes, sir, and let's fucking go after the announcement was made that they were signing Watson? Did you see the other people that supported uh, Deshaun Watson, by the way? along It was a real, I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse um, was one of the people that retweeted Deshaun Watson's tweet. I think, I'm trying to remember who the other one was. O.J. Simpson was somebody else who retweeted. So Deshaun Watson has... uh, created quite a a cheering section over the last year. Uh, Now he's got to live with it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. I wasn't on the show last week because I was playing in a Scrabble tournament in uh, Kingston, Ontario. Flew to Syracuse, rented a car, drove to Kingston. Um, It was my first tournament after a really bad tournament. And Josh can um, confirm that he wasn't the only person that I said after that tournament that it might be time for me to stop playing. It was just Confirmed. the worst. He did say that. So bad. Confirmed. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Wow. What? Um, oh, I just blew so many end games, Joel. So frustrated. Hated myself. Had to go into like a different room so that nobody would see me freak out. Um, but oh. I went back because I love my daughter who loves Scrabble and is better than I am now at it. And I want to see succeed and I want to be around her when she does succeed. So we went up to Ontario for this tournament. I met her up there and it went great. I played really well. I beat some people that were better than me. And then. On the last morning of the tournament, this crazy mystical shit happened where I played this insane word that I had learned the night before during conversation at dinner because one of the best players in the world had missed a similar word in his game. The probability of this happening were astronomical, off the charts, Um, but it really was one of the most gratifying, thrilling experiences that reinforced for me why I love doing this and why I love language and words and playing this game. And the word um, was Bushveld, B-U-S-H-V-E-L-D. It's highly improbable that this would show up in a game of Scrabble, and it's also highly improbable that a player at my level would have ever seen it. Um, And I have detailed the experience of this weekend for a piece that will run in Slate, and I encourage everyone to please read it. I think it's a fun read. Bushveld sounds like the the former great NBA player John Sunvold. (laughs) Stefan is is nodding. Um, I think that your fake retirement is now... um, Maybe supplanted Tom Brady's fake retirement as my favorite. It's possible. My favorite, my favorite <laughs> fake retirement of the month, actually. Wow. I'm honored. Wow. I'm honored. I'm honored. Um, Bushveld, by the way, a South African word, um, like a some sort of grassland, um, like a, a veld that is grassy. Josh, what's your Bushveld? My Bushveld is also about word games. There's this thing called Wordle. Maybe you've heard of it. You get six chances to guess a five-letter word. It's gone a little viral. It's now a part of my morning routine along with a bunch of alternate versions. There's Dordle, where you try to guess two Wordles simultaneously. I'm guessing you know about that one, Stefan. Mm-hmm. Stefan's a big Dordle guy. Um, I just also learned about an even better one. I learned about this from a Mina Kimes tweet, so thank you, Mina. Octordle where you guess eight wordles at once, which is maximum fun if you're nuts like Stefan is. Um, but there are also, I have not played that. You got you to gotta do Octordle. You get 13 tries to guess eight words. Um, there, but there are also wordle variants that use the same general approach to gamify other stuff. There's Worldle, where you try to guess a country based on a silhouetted black and white image an image that's generally not helpful because it's always some weird-ass island that nobody's ever heard of. Um, I got Madagascar the other day. Yeah, 
Did you get Diego Garcia? I bet you didn't. There are also sports versions, though. There's Gordle, where you guess an NHL player's name. There's also Wordle, that's war as in wins above replacement, where you try to identify a major league baseball player. There are a bunch more, too, and um, what you guys perhaps were not anticipating going into today's taping is that the three of us are going to cooperatively play two of them right now, live here on the air. So, Joel and Stefan, I am going to share my screen. Um, Here we go. Sharing my screen. Always dangerous to share one screen. Can you see that? Yes. Yeah. All right. Joel is just vibrating with excitement. First up, we have CFB Ordle, CF Birdle, which is a college football version of the game brought to you by College Football Reddit. If you want to try it yourself, uh, the URL is as follows, cfbordle.redditcfb.com. If you listen to this on Monday night, March 21st, you'll get the same word that we do. And if you don't, you'll get a different one. Um, but the basic idea is you try to guess a six-letter word that has something to do with college football. It can be a current or past player. It can be a team nickname, a coach, a bowl name. Um, Joel, I was thinking uh, I would be thrilled if you wanted to uh, volunteer a, a guess, but I was thinking we could do Cougar just in, in your honor here. Uh, yeah, you know, I have to, can I just say, I've never played Wordle. I've, uh, gone out of my way to not know what's happening here, but I was just going to go with orange, like orange bowl, but right. C- Cougar's fine. Well, wait, isn't it, isn't this five letters though? Oh, wait, it's five no, letters. Oh, I'm looking Cougar at six and down orange the line do not here. work. I'm just, oh, so, well, like, I was going, okay, thank I'm you, sorry. St- thank you, Stefan, for fact checking. That's those years peach, of playing peach. Scrabble that have, uh. Brought me to this point. Yeah, I'm the expert here, guys. I think I think Peach is a really good guest. You got some vowels. Yeah. All right, we're going Peach. Yeah. I'm extremely embarrassed that I could not count uh, to, to five. <laughs> All right, so we got Peach here, and we're hitting Enter. All right, so not a bad not a bad start. Hmm. We have uh, a green E in the second position, and we have a yellow H in the last position, and we have no P, A, or C. So, Joel, since you haven't played Wordle, what this means is that the E is locked into that position. Whatever our word is, is going to have an E in the second position. And there is an H in the word somewhere other than the oh. fifth position or the second position. So it could be H-E. It could be E-H. Probably not. It could be E-blank H. So, uh, Stefan, what do you think? Hmm. What, 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 maybe an H-E word? Hmm. Come on. Come on, uh, come on, Scrabble man. Come on, Scrabble man. What do you got for yeah. us? Yeah. Oh, what about, oh, I got one. How about a potential Alabama Heisman winning running back, Joel? Oh, Henry. Uh, Henry, yeah, Henry. All right, we're going We're going Derek Henry for our second guess. My boy, the sentient tree. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. All right, we've got H and E locked in. We've got the Y locked in, and we've got no N, but we have a yellow R. So it's got to be H-E-R blank Y. What is the college football thing that's H-E-R blank Y? Herb Street? Kirk? Oh, Herbie. Yeah. Uh, maybe not. Herbie. Hold on. Oh, okay. Uh, this is this makes great radio. Just yeah. watch it. Yeah. Let, uh, let's go with Herbie. Let's go with Herbie. I don't know if I would respect that that choice if it was Herbie, but it oh, is not it Herbie. Is not Herbie. Oh! So we have H-E-R blank Y. So it could be uh, Herty, Herty, Herzy, like Hersey Hawkins, but without the E. 
Herdy? Herfy. Herfy. Herdy. Wow, we are uh, not acquitting ourselves well here. We've gotten ourselves in quite, in quite a pickle. H-E-R-R-Y? Herdy? <laughs> <laughs> Let's try... Uh, Let's try... Harry? Harry. Let's try H-E-R-R-Y. Oh. What the hell's that? No, it could be Nikhil. No, the R would have come man. up. We wouldn't have had to do that twice. Yeah, the R man. would have come up on its own, Josh. It could have been Nikhil Harry, the wide receiver from Arizona State, although I don't think that's how you spell his name. Um, Ray? Her, how about Her... Her... Hervey? Hervey? Her, what the hell? Oh, Herky. Probably Herky, like Herky Jerky. Oh, yeah. Herky Herky. Herky. Oh, Herky, baby. There we go. Herky. Yeah. Good job. All right. How is that college football? Does that get y'all excited? I have no idea. Is, it, is, it, is this how Wordle works? I can, I can kind of What's your level of, What's your level of excitement, happens. Joel, from, from Houston victory to TCU loss? That's kind of what our continuum is here. So like a zero to like a zero to hundred thing? Probably creeping into the, the, the upper 50s, lower 60s. That's good. Probably. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And that was Not after bad. one. Yeah. All right. Second up and finally, we have Purtle, which is named in honor of the San Antonio Spurs center, Jakob Purtle. Again, if you want to play along, the link for this one is Purtle. That's P-O-E-L-T-L dot dunk dot town. That's Purtle dot dunk dot town and again if you're listening to this on monday night march 21st you'll get the same player that we do if you don't you'll get a different player but um in this one we're trying to guess a current nba guy and there is an opening clue it's a silhouette of that player's face can i can i pause and say that herky the hawk is the uh mascot for the iowa hawkeyes football team <laughs> I cannot say Ew. that we guessed that based on, on knowledge of Herky the Hawk, but now we know. Okay. Our, mm-hmm. our knowledge is growing. All right. So that could be anything. Well, that could be not, that doesn't have to be college football. That could have been college golf. I mean, you know, that didn't seem great point. Anyway, great point. All right. Mm-hmm. So, Pirtle, the NBA player guessing game, we get eight guesses. Um, are you guys wow. ready to see the silhouette? And this could be any current NBA player. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I've never played that college football thing before this morning, but I do actually do Purtle every day. And I correctly guessed yesterday that the player was Bones Highland. So, <laughs> oh my God. So, we, we, might be, we might be face it. One day it was uh, yeah. Lamarcus Aldridge. So, you know, it's, it's a rich tapestry. All right, we're looking at the silhouette. Uh, mm. Joel, oh do, would you care to describe this, this person to our listeners? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, this looks like if uh, Big Bird uh, played in the NBA. Like, it just kind of has like a, you know, just, he has kind of not a f- afro, but, you know, kind of the hair that, like, I have. You know what I mean? Like a little, like a little dude. But a little more uh, on the sides. A seem- little more, like, on the sides. Yeah, I have yeah. a fade. He didn't fade up his sides. No. He looked, yeah. Um, I, got, yeah. I got a couple I mean, possibles. All right, got I, I was going to go with Andrew Wiggins for me. Oh, that's I was going to go with either Joel Embiid or Jimmy Butler. Um, I think Jimmy got a little bit more, like, you know. We're going to go with Andrew Wiggins because Joel said it first. Here we go. Oh, that is not correct. All right. So here's the information that we have. And this is the way that Pirtle works. So um, we have we know that the player's in the Western Conference. We got a green right. there. And we know mm-hmm. that his age is within two years of 27, which is Andrew Wiggins' hmm. age. Mm. But he is not on the Golden State Warriors, not in the Pacific Division, not a forward. Uh, he's shorter than six foot seven, 
and he is actually, mm. uh, his number is less than 22. All right. So basically mm. all we know is that it's really nothing to do with Andrew Wiggins. Um, <laughs> and not in the Pacific Division. Okay. So let's see. Let's go back to our, our silhouette. Can we see the silhouette again? Yeah. Yeah, let's see that silhouette. So this could be mm. a guy in the like kind of Mavericks, Spurs, Pelicans, Rockets, Grizzlies sort of region in the country. Or yeah. it could be somebody mm. in like the Jazz, Nuggets, Blazers, kind of Northwest Division context. So we should so pick... It could be... <sighs> I mean, it's not... CJ McCollum. CJ McCollum, right? yeah. He's too old. No, I don't think CJ has hair. that hair too now. Too old, yeah. Not like that, no. Uh, well, people are growing it out now. It should tell you oh. when the <laughs> silhouette was taken. Is this from like the player um, headshot at the beginning of the year? Probably. I'm going to guess Nasir Little. How about that? Sure. Really? Very random. Okay, go for it. All right. Mm. It is not Nasir Little. And it's not, it's, <laughs> okay, we know that it's not. The Northwest Division. So it has to be somebody in the division. I can't remember the name of it. I think Southwest. The so Mavericks Division. The Mavericks, Rockets, Spurs, Pelicans, Spurs. Grizzlies. Yeah. That context. Um, and it's somebody who, it's a guard who's shorter than 6'5". So that's some new information for us. Okay. A guard shorter than 6'5". And his number is uh, between 9 and 22. Between 10 oh. and 21. What about... um? Jalen Brent. What about Jalen Brunson? Okay, I was going to go with Kevin Porter Jr., but there you go. That's fine. So Kevin, I don't think it would be Kevin Porter Jr. because this guy's older than twenty-two. Oh, how was Kevin Porter? Okay, you're right. Okay, Jalen Brunson, Jaylen Brunson, Dallas Mavericks. Oh, come oh! on! Oh, come oh on. my God! <laughs> wow! Whoa! Wow! Damn. Good this was not Josh. a setup. This was not a setup. I, I guess I haven't watched a lot of Mavericks games. I didn't know Jim had his hair like that. Congratulations huh. to me. Yeah. Thanks for and saving to Herky, us, And to Herky the Hawk. Um, I would love to hear from our listeners how painful that was to listen to. If that was just like the most brutal, unenjoyable segment of all time. It's Purtle. It's CF Bortle. You can try them. Uh, we'll put links in our show notes. And that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> <laughs>